This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory in Ruskin, Florida. Thanks for joining us. The aquarium fish industry includes thousands of species of freshwater and marine fish and invertebrates farmed or collected from all over the world. This global diversity keeps the aquarium hobby fascinating and fresh, but also troubles some of our natural resource agencies, especially when non-native fish are found outside their tanks and in our environment. Join us as we talk to Dr. Jeff Hill, a scientist at the University of Florida, to learn more about keeping non-native aquarium fish where they belong. We'll be right back, right after these messages. Stay tuned. Molly, here's your dinner. (coughs) Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Dr. Jeff Hill, a scientist at the University of Florida who works with aquaculture and non-native species. Hi, Jeff. Thanks again for being with us today. Hi, Dr. Roy. Thanks for having me. So you've got a pretty interesting background. I kind of wanted to start with maybe some of the, the basic questions I like to ask. How did you get interested in the aquarium hobby and what was your first fish? Well, that's thinking back a lot of years, but my first fish was a goldfish. We had a little goldfish bowl like a lot of folks start out back when I was a kid, maybe four or five. And uh, my older brother and sister had had goldfish before that. And I really got interested probably about the time I was seven or eight years old. A a family friend was a local high school science teacher. And she really got me interested in, in keeping aquaria and keeeping some of the reptiles and amphibians as pets as well. So it it started in an early time. And, I understand you used to be an aquarium fish farmer as well. Can you tell us a little bit about where, when, and how you first became involved in that? Well, that's, that's kind of a, a complicated story, but sure. The, I, I used to have a fish farm down in South Florida, down south of Miami. And somewhat uh, roundabout way, I got into the, the uh, fish farming business. I was raising fish as a part-time hobby, as a lot of folks do. And I began to sell and trade fish. Uh, again, as a lot of people do, but I, I expanded it a little bit more. I moved down to South Florida from my home state of Alabama and was working for an aquaculture firm working with food fish. 
And on the side, I began raising some of the ornamentals. And, and when uh, Hurricane Andrew came through back in 1992 and, and devastated South Florida, my job at the aquaculture facility was no more. But luckily, I did have a, a somewhat thriving fish business at that point, and, I, and that part of it did survive. And I got into the aquarium business, uh, aquarium fish business that way. And what kind of fish did you do? I raised mostly African cichlids. Uh, over time, I also had a number of business associates who imported fish from South America. And so I began selling some of those imports, and also they sold some of my farm-raised African cichlids. Most of my fish were from Lake Malawi, but I also raised a number of species from Lake Tanganyika. So how would you compare, I guess, just uh, fish farming back then down in South Florida versus now? I, I, that was, I'm assuming, a while back since you hadn't gone to grad school yet. That was back in the 1990s, so it's been a few years ago. The industry has changed considerably. When I was down there, African cichlids were probably at their peak in terms of demand and variety and, and the real interest that, that was around them. And a number of producers were down there. Uh, it seems to be larger than it is today. Uh, Hurricane Andrew certainly had its influence on, on that business, as have some subsequent changes in marketing. Back in those days, a lot of people marketed much more directly to wholesalers. There were a lot of, of regional wholesalers around the U.S., and that was my main market. I sold to folks in the Northeast and the upper Midwest. I sold out a lot of fish on the West Coast, and I shipped my fish. I directly shipped to those wholesalers. A lot of fish farmers now, and a lot of the African cichlid farmers, they sell to larger farms that are the big shipping farms. And, of course, again, a lot of the product now doesn't go as much through those, those wholesalers and out to the, the mom-and-pop stores as a lot of it goes now to the, uh, the big, big box stores that are selling uh, lots and lots of uh, fish these days. I guess one of the biggest things that, that amazes me is that I actually got more money for my fish in those days than the, the producers are making now on those fish and of course with inflation that's a a big difference in the amount of money that the producers actually make per fish okay so i guess now going back to the major change from kind of industry to academia how did you go from aquarium fish farming to decide to go to graduate school and and your current kind of research and um, other work well i've always been a bit of a fish nerd and so i think a, a lot of a fish nerd or a fish head you might say and so at an early age, I really enjoyed fish and, and going out and, and collecting fish and fishing and, and keeping aquaria. But I had a lot of influences on my life early on. I had a, a biology teacher, uh, Mrs. Alexander, who I mentioned before, that really helped shape a lot of my interests in biology. And I also grew up in a town with a university, and I knew a number of biology professors at the university, and I really liked what they did for a living. Uh, they kind of took me under their wing, and, and I got to see a lot of the things that they did and their students did, and it really interested me. As an undergraduate, I was very interested in academia as well, and, and eventually a career in fish biology. And I think when I was probably in sixth or seventh grade, I was asked, as, as school kids often are, what do you want to do when you grow up? And and my, my answer was different than I think everyone else in my class, and that was to be a college professor. And so I really had that goal and that interest. And e even during my fish farming days, I was interested in, 
the academic side of things, the ecology and the ichthyology side. And so it just came about that I had an opportunity to um, sell my facility down in South Florida and have the opportunity to pursue graduate school and to to really live that dream of, of becoming a, a college professor and do the things that I love to do. Well, that's great. And and uh, having known you for a number of years now, I, I do have to agree, you are certainly a, a fish nerd slash fish geek. <laughs> so that's true. So now, um, I guess you decided to go to grad school. What did you end up working on in grad school? Well, when I first went to grad school, I had a real interest in working on uh, reproduction and, and production of African cichlids. It's something that I was raising in my, my farm. I was kind of aquaculture oriented in some ways, but I began to change my thoughts uh, oh, about a year or so in and really went back to my first love, which was the ecology side of things. And I began to uh, search out some of the the different projects. In you know, Florida, we've got lots of fish. And I lived in South Florida, worked with the aquarium uh, industry for a long time. And I, I began to realize that the non-native species issue was a big one. And so my graduate work actually took me back down to South Florida from Gainesville. And I worked on the uh, the butterfly peacock bass, Cichla oscillaris. That's a large South American cichlid, kind of looks like our North American bass. And it's very similar to the largemouth bass, which is native in South Florida. So my my studies, both in, in as a master's student and as a PhD student, focused on the the similarities, the ecological similarities and the differences of largemouth bass and the peacock bass and the interactions of those two species and what would be ultimately the effect of the introduction of peacock bass on largemouth bass. Okay, so given all that, I guess uh, maybe just to get everything kind of cleaned up and, and explained for some of our listeners, what, what would you say your official job is at the Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory, you know, between the non-natives and the aquarium fish? Well, I'm an assistant professor with uh, the Program of Fisheries and Aquatic Sciences, and I'm also the uh, extension specialist for non-native fish. And as such, I have research, I have teaching, and I have extension responsibilities and programs here at the University of Florida. And I'm housed at the Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory because I work a lot with the the ornamental fish industry in Florida, with the aquaculture industry actually nationwide, a lot of the agencies, but also a lot of the species that are uh, raised in, in aquaculture and that are kept by aquarium hobbyists. And so I do research on the ecology and, and the management of those species out in the environment. I do a lot of what is called risk analysis or trying to predict the risks of non-native species and, and how to manage those risks. And I work also in teaching graduate students and undergraduates in courses. And I provide outreach or the extension to a lot of agencies and to the industry, the fish farmers in, included, in order to get that information that they can use in order to make aquaculture and pet ownership in, in Florida, among other uses, of non-native species more sustainable and uh, something that, that will be uh, more environmentally friendly. Okay. So getting into, I guess, the meat of it, I know there's a lot of confusion, especially in the popular press, about some of the kind of the terms used for what we're talking about, you know, non-native species, invasive species. 
exotics. Um, what maybe in a kind of a nutshell, what's what are some of the main differences and how they how are they pertinent to aquarium fish? It's a huge debate, actually. It's very interesting. Uh, you know, science has its own language, and and words have a lot of meaning. But interestingly enough, in this field, which is kind of a new field, so it's not completely unusual that there's some debate over terminology but we have we have these debates that go back and forth about what do we call certain types of species and are they non-native are they invasive are they exotic basically the bottom line is that non-native non-indigenous alien introduced all these are broad terms that really mean the same thing they mean species that have been moved by humans outside of their historic range and for North America, the historic range would be where a species was in 1492 before the the English or the European contact with North America. The there are also terms that are a little more specific. So exotic is often used. Exotic species are those species that come from a foreign country, and so we have those species in the U.S. We have. Uh, a number of those, tilapia, for instance, are from Africa, so they would be exotic in the U.S. We also have things that are called transplants, and transplants are species that are moved around within a country. So if you have rainbow trout in the uh, Smoky Mountains, for instance, in the, in the Appalachian Mountains in the east, those would be non-native and they would be transplants. Now, interestingly, the term invasive species is a very, very kind of controversial term. And it's really a, has a very distinct management-oriented definition, and that is an invasive species is one that's non-native and that causes harm or has at least a high probability of causing harm in terms of, of the ecology or economic harm or harm to human health. So it, it has some subjectivity on what really is harm and how much harm does it take. As an ecologist, I really don't like that term invasive species in a lot of ways. And the main one is I use the term invade a lot. In, in fact, my field is called invasion ecology. And that field really simply studies species that are moved around by humans. And it doesn't necessarily mean that those species are causing problems or they're not causing problems. It's a much more neutral definition. So it, it is an interesting discussion and debate about what do we really mean when we sometimes use these terms like non-native and invasive. Okay, so why should aquarium hobbyists care about non-native species issues then? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. One is many hobbyists are certainly concerned about the environment. And that's one reason a lot of people get interested in, in having aquarium, keeping and maintaining these animals. If you really love the environment and you're, you're interested in these, then you want to make sure you're not harming the environment by releasing species that might eventually harm the environment or harm industries. And so that's that's a big issue that I think is a very personal issue for aquarium hobbyists. From a bigger picture, the non-native species issues are really large in terms of regulation. And there's more and more interest in regulating non-native species in the U.S., really around the world and, and within lots of the different states. And so as an aquarium hobbyist, we want to make sure that the hobby is not contributing to the problem. And because the hobby really is going to be blamed in many cases for species that get loose. And in some cases, there, there are people that do release their fish or other aquatic organisms, and that can be certainly problematic. 
And so from that big picture standpoint, I think that the aquarium hobbyists need to keep aware of these issues and, and make sure that they don't release fish into the environment because down the road, some of those species may be you know, taken away from the hobby if that's the case. So you mentioned a number of regulations. How are non-native fish regulated in the U.S.? Well, most non-native species regulations actually reside with the states. And so each state has its own series of regulations, typically a fish and wildlife agency, a department of parks and wildlife, or a department of natural resources will be the lead agency in regulating regulating non-native fish or other organisms that might be in the aquarium hobby. And so they typically have a listing process where there will be species that are prohibited. So you, you can't have those. Maybe a, a public aquarium like the Florida Aquarium might be able to get a permit to, to display them. A researcher such as myself might be able to get a permit to do research with them. But the general public and the aquarium hobby really not have those species. On the other hand, there may be species that are on lists that are conditional. And so those species would be ones that you can have under certain circumstances. You may be able to raise them as an aquaculture species, or you may be able to get a permit to keep one yourself as a, as a private citizen in a home aquarium. Outside of the states, there's also federal regulation. And the Fish and Wildlife Service is the main agency that regulates non-native species in the U.S. overall. And it has a mechanism called the injurious wildlife list. And there are a few species of fish that are on that injurious wildlife list. The snakeheads, for instance, all the snakeheads are placed on the injurious wildlife list. Now, what that means is those species may not be imported into the U.S., nor may they be transported across state lines. It doesn't necessarily ban those fish within the state borders, but they do prevent the interstate movement of those species. And so that's another mechanism and really the primary mechanism for regulating non-native species at the federal level. Well, I've got a number of questions, obviously, to, to ask and maybe discuss even some of the fish now in the U.S. that are introduced. But let's take a short break to hear from our sponsors before we continue on with our discussion of non-native species with Dr. Jeff Hill. We'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com <laughs> We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Dr. Jeff Hill from the University of Florida. Jeff, we were talking a little bit about regulations and some of the implications with regulations, including obviously regulation of aquarium fish. I know there's a lot of science involved with a lot of these regulations and, and a lot of science still occurring 
Could you give us maybe an idea of what are some of the fish species and aquarium species in particular in around the U.S. that have become established and or are considered you know, non-native problems? Well, there are a number of species that have been introduced from the aquarium hobby. And one of the kind of interesting things in terms of the geography of the U.S. and its climate and habitats is that most of the non-native species that are in the ornamental trade, so in the aquarium hobby, are actually tropical in nature. And so when things get introduced into, uh, say, Michigan, would not be as much of a problem as potentially in Florida. But we do have a number of species that have been introduced around the U.S. Florida has a number of species, probably 15, 16, 17 species, depending upon how you determine exactly where they came from that are from the aquarium hobby directly. Uh, California has a number of species, Hawaii, southern Texas. And there's some I- interesting spots here and there where there are warm springs. In the Rocky Mountain states, there are a number of species that have been introduced into those states. But here in Florida, for instance, we have a number of cichlids. We also have some of the armored sucker mouth catfishes, commonly known as plecos. So we have some of the large pterygoplectes or sailfin plecos, which are really something that that our natural resource managers and fisheries managers are interested in because they're spreading throughout peninsular Florida. A number of cichlid species like Mayan cichlids, African jewelfish is another species. So there are a number of those that have become established and then lots of those also get introduced here and there around the country. One of the more interesting species or groups that that have been introduced here and there have been the snakeheads. And there's been a lot of discussion about the snakeheads. The northern snakehead is established in some parts of the U.S. Here in Florida, we have the bullseye snakehead. And those are species that have in the past been kept by aquarium hobbyists. But they also come in in a different way, too, in the live food fish trade. So they're a good example of sometimes it's difficult to tell whether it's an aquarium hobbyist or another pathway that has led to the introduction of a species. And so aquarium hobbyists ought to be aware of some of these other pathways as well and, and, and take care not to uh, contribute to those pathways. With uh, a lot of the carp problems up in the, I guess, the Midwest and, and the Mississippi, were, were any of those aquarium fish related or, or not? No, the, the Asian carp that we hear a lot about are not aquarium related at all. Those were a combination of of aquaculture for food or for other uses such as black carp were used for controlling snails and, and catfish ponds. So there's a variety of uses in aquaculture some of these species may have. But also agencies brought in some of the species for research. Uh, the grass carp, for instance, uh, there many states have used grass carp to control aquatic weeds. And so some of those species have, have come in from, from research or from the agencies themselves. But, but those Asian carp are not an aquarium introduction. So how, how does a non-native fish become established in an area? That's an interesting process. It's, it's, a, it's a very complicated process, surprisingly so. We might think, well, you dump a couple of fish in the water and, and lo and behold, they start spawning and, and, and you have lots and lots of, of those fish around. Sometimes it is that easy. In many cases, it's a very difficult thing. Most of the time, an introduction doesn't work. Uh, lots of agencies 
has spent lots of money trying to establish some non-native fish for sport fishing or other purposes, and it hasn't been successful. But, but basically, all species that are introduced and become established go through a series of steps. And those steps are basically the species has to be introduced or has to escape somehow. It has to survive that. So it does, if it's a tropical species, it doesn't need to fall into uh, a water body that's too cold, for instance, where it's going to die. If, so it has to survive the introduction. It has to find a suitable environment for, for long-term uh, survival. I, I have some, some colleagues in northern states that send me photographs in the fall of, of fish that they're not sure what they are. And unfortunately, that's where probably aquarists have dumped some fish into those lakes, but then the lake gets too cold and, and those fish die and float up. So a fish has to live in a, in a suitable habitat for, for long-term survival. There ha- has to be enough of them to find mates. They have to reproduce. And not only reproduce, but those offspring have to survive and grow to maturity and be able to reproduce themselves. And then over time, a population may build up enough that it expands in numbers and in geographic area enough that it really becomes established and it, re- it becomes a permanent part of the local fauna. So it sounds like there's quite a bit of, quite a number of steps that these fish have to go through in order to become established, but it's uh, obviously some of them are, are able to do that. One fish I know that's made a lot of news in the past number, number of years are the uh, lionfish. Can you say a little bit about the lionfish, that marine fish that's being found outside of its normal range? The lionfish is a very interesting case. It's one of the very few marine species that we have that of fish, anyway. There are some marine invertebrates that have been established, but one of the very few marine fish that have established in, in U.S. waters. The lionfish is a, a large, relatively medium to large size fish. It's showy. It has these big fins with spines. It's venomous. And so it is a species that doesn't have a lot of predators. Certainly some things do eat it in the environment, some large groupers and things. But it is, has been able to spread up and down the eastern coast of the U.S. It's very abundant in the Bahamas now. It's up in Bermuda. And it has, in the last about two years, has really begun to expand throughout the Caribbean and the western Gulf. And it's now on the northern side of the Yucatan Peninsula on the Gulf of Mexico. And I suspect it will move its way north into waters off of Texas and Louisiana over time. Certainly in Florida, we have the lionfish off the coast of Florida. They have not really established in in state waters, which are close to the shore, but they are present and and abundant in some places and, and waters just offshore. It's a very interesting case because there's debate and discussion about where the lionfish came from, and, and there's a lot of different hypotheses that are out there, but the consensus among a lot of the folks that, that work with lionfish is that lionfish came from the pet trade and came from the aquarium hobbyists. And so that, again, is one of those issues where aquarium hobbyists need to be very careful, and and it has really... The lionfish example has really put a lot of light on the aquarium industry and concerned a lot of people that other species like lionfish may get established. Now, what do lionfish do in the environment? That's a really good question. The data are really just now beginning to come in. It is clear from some preliminary data that lionfish are having some impacts on other fish on the reef. 
And that's obviously problematic from, from the standpoint of the reefs themselves and, and the fisheries that those reefs support. And, of course, people that like to go and dive and, and see the, the variety of fishes out on the reef. And so it'll be interesting. And really kind of have to wait until more data come in. But time will tell if, how, how big an impact the lionfish will have in the, uh, on the reef systems here in the U.S. So you talked a little bit about the lionfish which obviously have, have made a lot of news coming over from, uh, from the Pacific. What are effects of some of the other non-native fish in the environment that are maybe a little more specific with, with species that you are familiar with? Well, I do a lot of work with fish here in Florida, and we have a lot of different species. I mentioned oh, 16, 17 or so from, that are potentially aquarium releases, but we have about 34 species overall that are reproducing in peninsular Florida. So that's a lot of species, second only to California in, in terms of numbers. The effects, it's a very interesting uh, thing, the, the effects. There has not been a lot of stone effects of these fish. We, we would think there would be more over time. But one of the problems is it's very difficult to study effects. And we don't have a lot of information that goes back before these species began to come into Florida. So that makes it a little more difficult. But we do know some things that they do. We, we know that certain species are predators and they eat native species. And that occurs very commonly. Many of our, many of our non-native fishes are predators here in Florida. We have uh, other, other examples or potential for competition of, of nest sites between some of the cichlids and some of our native sunfish. There's not a lot of evidence for that, but there certainly is some circumstantial evidence in places. The grass carp, as I mentioned before, have big impacts on vegetation. And, and those impacts on vegetation actually lead to some big changes in fish communities and some other aspects of the environment as well. Although, interestingly enough, those grass carp are actually stocked purposefully to create those changes in vegetation. We have some species like tilapia that will make big nests and that changes the environment in local spots. We have the, the armor sucker mouth catfishes or plecos which dig into and, and create burrows into the banks. That can lead to some erosion issues as well. So there are a variety of, of negatives, negative effects that these non-native species may have. One, one of the big ones, which is, is from a very strictly human standpoint, is that they get into our national parks and state parks and preserves. And you know, that's, those parks are often, the, try, they try to manage those parks in a pre-human, uh, as a pre-human environment. I know it's a very difficult thing to do and maybe even to understand, but they want to have those parks look like they, they did before there were a lot of people around. And it's, it's a very difficult thing when you have non-native fish in the environment. The, the flip side of that is that there has been okay. study on the effects at a, at a bigger scale. I've done some of this and others as well. And it has been very interesting in Florida, at least, that these non-native species have not caused these huge catastrophic changes that, that you might think of or might predict based on how many species that we have in the environment. I guess going back to some of the work I did with peacock bass and largemouth bass, the, the, the non-native peacock bass are very, very similar to the largemouth bass, which is a native species. They eat about the same things. They're about the same size. They live in the same areas. 
it's they're similar in terms of abundance and you would think perhaps that the peacock bass would have negative effects on largemouth bass but that really hasn't proven to be the case and it turns out that largemouth bass are, are pretty good at feeding on things that the peacock bass don't they're pretty good at, at surviving right alongside with the peacock bass now there are some instances in other places where non-native fish have caused some pretty big problems when you have springs out in the in the southwest in the desert with fish that are uh, very uh, found in very small ranges maybe just in one or two springs and they're not used to having predators and you stock predators other non-native fish in those springs that can be quite problematic and there are many other examples as well so not to leave the the listener with the impression that non-native fish don't cause problems but it is very interesting that sometimes we think that they've caused a lot more problems than perhaps they have in in the u.s and in other places in the world so it sounds like there's a, quite a bit of complexity in, in a lot of these issues what other types of aquarium species are some you think that hobbyists should be real careful with in terms of release? Well, there's a few that, that really also are pretty high profile. The, the aquarium plants, that's a big one. Hydrilla, for instance, is a species that the, the state of Florida spends probably $10 million or more a year on, on control. And that's, that's certainly a problematic species. Milfoil up in, in some other northern parts of the U.S. There's lots of of non-native plants that are kept in aquaria, also in water gardens. There are some lilies that are showing up here in the state of Florida, water lilies that that uh, could be potentially tied back to the, the water garden trade. And so there are those species. In terms of other animals, snails are a big one. The uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture is very concerned about snails, a lot of the apple snails that are in the aquarium uh, aquarium hobby. The channel apple snail has made a lot of headlines over recent years, and it's a very common, has been very common in the past in the aquarium trade, but has proved to become a pest of rice and taro production, and also potentially a problem if it's introduced into lakes that have vegetation. And so you have crayfish also, which people are concerned about. So there are other species as well, not just the the fish that. Uh, that, that hobbyists need to be concerned with and, and simply not release. And plants are really tough. Snails are really tough. And the reason is those uh, plants can propagate sometimes by just breaking pieces off. And so if a hobbyist isn't careful with, uh, with disposal of the plant, then uh, some pieces may get into a water body. Snails may, may live inside their shells for weeks and weeks without water. And you think they're dead, but they're really not. And so proper care has to be taken in disposing of the shells. So there are a lot of other species we need to be concerned about sometimes and, and just be careful with. So we've only got really a couple, a couple minutes left. Can you maybe real briefly just talk about what hobbyists – well, two things. One is what can be done then to remove these, these animals that are not native from the environment? And number two, what, what should hobbyists do – with regard to seeing non-natives and also to try to help keep the aquarium hobby clean and, and kind of keeping animals where they should be and where they belong? Well, the, f- the first question about what do you do when these are in the environment, it's uh, if, if a hobbyist happens to see some non-native species in the environment, definitely get a hold of the uh, state fish and wildlife agency that 
that can go out then and find out if this is a new species, if this is going to be a problem, and let people know. If you can detect a species that's in the environment very early on when it's localized, when it's, there are small numbers of them, it's much easier to get rid of them, to eradicate them. If uh, we find a small population of fish that in, in an area that, that it's conducive to this, uh, fisheries managers will go out and actually use what's called rotenone, which is a fish toxicant. You go out and you actually kill off those fish to get rid of them. Unfortunately, that also kills off other fish that may be native. It kills off the sometimes some invertebrates as well. So it's a drastic measure, but one that's often taken and often necessary to do to control f- these species. Once fish are out in the environment, it's very difficult to be able to get them back. And so it's it's very difficult to control them in terms of you can't trap them out. Sometimes you, you people think that, well, we can go out and catch enough of them by fishing or, or trapping. It's very, very difficult to do that. So there's not many tools available for fisheries managers to remove these non-native species. And I guess the second question is a really important one for the listeners of the show. What can hobbyists do to, uh, to keep our, our waterways clean of these species? The first thing is, is to make sure not to release any non-native fish or other, other organisms into the environment. It's illegal to do so. Almost every state has very specific regulations prohibiting that. It's also not a good thing for the, for the fish. People think that, well, I'm going to be humane and let this fish go. That's not a humane thing. In many cases, that fish is not going to be able to find food or it's going to be killed and eaten by a predator or it's going to get too cold and it's going to die. Nemo probably actually died when he got flushed down the toilet, right? Nemo would have died getting flushed down the toilet. That's exactly right. Okay. And, and of course, it's also bad for the environment to release uh, fish or any other organism out there that's not native. And, and so it's really imperative for the hobbyist to understand when you go to the pet store to buy that that new fish for the aquarium, know a lot about it. Know how big it's going to get. Know what if it has special requirements like special live food that it has to have. A lot of fish are sold and they're just a few inches long and they're really cute. And you take them home and you put them in your aquarium and they keep growing and they keep growing and they're difficult to take care of. So educate yourself before purchasing those fish. And that will be a big help also in preventing these things from getting out of the environment. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, and I definitely learned a lot. Jeff, I really want to thank you for joining us and also our producers, especially Mark Winter, for uh, making the show possible. Please be sure to check out Jeff's webpages. The links will be on his Aquarium Mania bio page. I encourage all of you to visit my Aquarium Mania blog on PetLifeRadio.com. You'll find pictures from this episode and can ask questions or make comments as well. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy, D-R-R-O-Y, at PetLifeRadio.com. That's drroy at PetLifeRadio.com. If you're over in Florida, please be sure to visit the Aquarium Mania exhibit at the Florida Aquarium in Tampa, one of my favorite aquariums. Until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores and keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy, and don't release any fish into the environment. Thanks for joining us. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.